Welcome everybody, it's Martin Kiernan here today and I'm delighted to uh, be joined by Dr Luke Moore. Now Luke is a consultant in infectious diseases and clinical microbiology and virology at the Chelsea and Westminster NHS Foundation Trust. He also works at the Northwest London Pathology at Imperial uh, and he's an honorary clinical senior lecturer at the National Institute for Health Research and Health Protection Research Unit at Imperial. He has a PhD in clinical microbiology, a holder of a number of very important research grants, is extremely busy at the moment. Uh, and today he's joined me to talk to me about a paper just published in BMC Infectious Diseases, uh, which is the bacteremia variation during the COVID pandemic, when she's looking at the first uh, wave of the pandemic. So welcome, Luke. And could you give us a little outline of this paper, and then we'll get into having a chat about it. Yeah, thanks very much indeed, Martin. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I, I think COVID has taught us many things. It's, it's taught us to look at the detail of each individual patient, but it's also been a, understandably, a global public health emergency, which has meant that we've had to zoom out our perspective on certain things. And this, uh, this most recent paper from my group has looked at an ecological analysis of bloodstream infections. Uh, as you say, during UK COVID wave one, so spring 2020 here in the UK. And what we did was to, to look at the potential impact mm. of COVID as, as an infectious disease, but also the public health measures we instigated to cope with that pandemic on bloodstream infections. And by that, I mean Enterobacteriales bacteremias, Staph aureus bacteremias, Strep pneumobacteremias, and coagulase negative Staph. Bacteremias. And we looked at two years of data prior to the COVID outbreak, and then the first three months, so February through to April 2020, of the COVID outbreak. And we looked for changes in trend. And we did that using two different statistical methods just to cross check ourselves. The first was just a linear trend analysis. So, did bacteremias for those four organism groups I mentioned change during COVID wave one in the UK? Uh, if you anticipate that the prior two years were could could have a static mean, and then second of all, we tried to get a little bit more technical because I mean, as we all know, certain bacteremias are seasonal. Uh, we all see a preponderance of strep pneumo every winter season, and we all see a preponderance of enterobacteriales every summer season for reasons we we may or may not get into during this discussion. So we developed an, an ARIMA model to cope with that to again look at the same data. And across both those models, both the linear trend analysis and the ARIMA model, we saw a, uh, a, a huge deficit in the, in the observed number of enterobacteriales bacteremias during COVID wave one, and an excess in the number of coagulase negative staph bacteremias mm -hmm. in COVID wave one, both, both random coagulase negative staph bacteremias, which one may conclude are contaminants, but also patients who had two yeah. uh, coagulase negative staph bacteremias within a 14-day period, which one may attribute to a central line associated bloodstream infection. Yeah, that surprised me. Uh, and then uh, staph aureus and strep pneumo stayed flat, which I, which actually took me by surprise because I was expecting those more transmissible bugs to, uh, to change as we isolated from one another. But, uh, so that, that's, your, that's your headline news, Martin. But let's, uh, let's wade into whichever facets of it you like. Well, the enterobacteriales. Let's start with that one because that was that was quite striking change. And you know, you allude to it possibly maybe people not presenting. Um, I mean, the seasonality certainly doesn't explain it. That's for sure. Um, so, you know, 
do you think there is any evidence of people staying at home and, and succumbing to significant infections or was it the fact that some of the interventions we may have been putting into place, you know, were people not getting their chemotherapy uh, at that time or as much of the chemotherapy? Do you think that may have had some uh, impact on that? Well, so all of the above, Martin. So we saw kind of pre-COVID our our uh, enterobacterialis bacterium rates being about two and a half percent, something around there. But um, then during uh, during COVID wave one, they dropped off precipitously to approximately half that. And in absolute numbers, that means that across our sector of London, which copes with or serves approximately 3 million people across our hospitals, uh, we were getting approximately 100 and 120 a month, dropping down to about 60 a month. So where did they go? As you say, is it because our public health messaging, particularly around long-term care institutes, nursing homes, uh, uh, rehab homes, was stay at home if you have a fever? Was it because our messaging to citizens in their own homes was stay at home if you have a fever? Or was it because we were doing not just less chemotherapy, but you know, less urological surgery, less hepatobiliary surgery, less GI surgery? Mm-hmm. And I think in the run-up to COVID, there had been a shift in public health, public health strategy and DHSC uh, direction towards reducing and and you know there was a drive to halve E. coli bacteremias in the run up to this. Yeah, um, and we we've succeeded, but not perhaps for the reasons we wanted to. So <laughs> it's um, all of the above reasons could have fed into it. But I think what our paper. Sh- did was to shine a light on this being mm. a, a facet of perhaps unintended consequences of of the stay at home if you have a fever message, but we need to we need to draw that out. And so I, I, I'm hoping this paper is going to act as a spur yeah. for more detailed analyses of, of what proportion were uh, were nosocomial or healthcare associated mm-hmm. and therefore understandably lost, but then how many of those were community attributed and. And, and, and it was a mistake to not to not detect those and treat those patients appropriately. Yeah, I mean, I was racking my brains thinking of what you know, what changes in human behaviour might have impacted on it, you know, and because I often associate urinary tract infection leading into bloodstream infection with that group of organisms, and you know, but I couldn't think of any change in human behaviour around that time because then you know, you think dehydration, more people are staying at home more, are they more likely to make themselves more cups of tea? So, you know, something relatively simple like that. That, that actually yeah, yeah. You know, could that have had some impact so as you say this raises more many more questions than the, the simple finding but i thought i thought that was a fascinating aspect really because did the inpatient population change then apart from you're not doing that form of surgery you know do, did you do, any impl- idea that you're not getting the frequent flyers who may be more colonized with the same certainly the more resistant uh, enterobacterialis so we couldn't analyze this within this ecological, ecological analysis, but certainly anecdotally in my clinical practice, we had, as you say, many few uh, frequent flyers. Um, and as we discussed, we shipped out in our sector most elective surgery to uh, private healthcare providers who, who did all our NHS surgery in, mm-hmm. in inverted corners, clean hospitals during that period. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, and then we had a shift change of, of admissions and our antimicrobial prescribing around that. Now, that is the other potential for bias in this, in that pretty much everyone who came into hospital with a fever, uh, we we gave 
antibacterials to in wave one because we did not know what we know now about COVID and, and the very low rates of secondary bacterial infections. So was it just that every single person who came in had an antibacterial, which wiped out our ability to detect <laughs> gram-negative bacteremia? I don't believe that that is the reason we for our data, but it is just a, no another possible... It's a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you shipped out the surgery to the private sector, presumably if they'd got a bloodstream infection secondary to that at a later date, they probably would have come into you anyway and not gone back to the private sector. Yeah, so they you would. might have picked up some of those. Yeah, and we, we mm. you know, we had a, a tail end of those patients who would come back in with surgical complications back into our NHS uh, hospitals. Um, but, but again, anecdotal and not within this paper, but my vision was that that was many fewer number of surgical site infections than normal. But then mm. again, I, I, I don't know enough about the volume of surgery being undertaken in private hospitals to know what that ratio is. Yeah, yeah. You don't know, you don't know the denominator, do you? You've got, you've got good numerator data. Yeah. <laughs> but that's about all. That was fascinating. And, and I can remember speaking to John Otter around that time and him saying, well, we're not really seeing many enterobacteriales. And, and other things like C. diff were dropping off as well. Yeah. But yeah. again, that could be the, the frequent flyers, even though, as you say, you were giving broad-spectrum antibiotic to everybody coming through the door, almost. Yeah. But you've got a different inpatient population. Did, did, did the age groups change or anything like that? Were you able to look at that? Uh, so we had high-level age data. We had age and gender. It was all we had for this mm. ecological analysis. And there, there was a... There, no, in the mean age, it didn't really shift, but the variability around that, the measure variance did change in that pre-COVID, we had a wide age range bracket. And then uh, during mm -hmm. COVID, the, the, the mean stayed approximately the same, but the, the variation around that closed down, we had a narrow enough. Yeah, which was interesting in of itself. Let's go on to talk about gram positives then, because that was also, again, quite a stark change. And... Um, you know, I know you, you picked up a load of coagnagstash, which you're attributing potentially to central line-associated bloodstream infections. Now, to me, when I looked at that, I'm thinking, well, if that's practice, I'd have expected to see a few staph tucked in there as well, and that, that number to go up a little bit. And that didn't change at all. No. So any thoughts about that? Yeah, so you know, I'm, I always try to not presuppose the data. I often fail, but uh, I do try. Yeah. And going into this analysis for this manuscript, I was expecting to see uh, Zippo strep pneumos, and I was expecting to see Zippo community acquired Staph aureus because we're not we're not going around hugging each other in in wider society. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, as you suggest, Martin, I was expecting to see an uptick in Staph aureus. And, you know, I never call Staph aureus bacteremia a contaminant, but, but Staph aureus that perhaps yeah, yeah. may not be illustrative of the actual pathogenesis. Um, but we, we didn't see that for Staph aureus. We saw it, as you say, absolutely flat in both the arema analysis and the linear regression analysis. So two different ways of looking at that data. Um, and I, 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 I can't explain it. I cannot explain the uptick in coagulase negative stats, but the flat Staph aureus. Um, other than to say, uh, I mean, when you when you look at the graphs, one must always be cognizant of the difference in y-axis and the number of coagulase-negative staph bacteremias uh, pre-COVID, but then post-COVID is it's, it's four times as many as staph aureus. Yeah. So is it just that there, there was a very small uptick in staph aureus, but our statistical methods weren't able to detect that? Mm -hmm. But because we're dealing with with uh, four times as many coagulase negative staph bacteria in any given month is it easier to detect that I'm, i don't know 
So the new mirror is interesting, isn't it? Because, as I said, you expect not to see many because we're not many, not much contact. And so, does that mean that actually most or that that people carry pneumo and eventually get an infection with it and it's a, it's not maybe as transmissible or are we just not uh, I, I can't really understand why that might be the case really yeah well well i mean certainly. does it does long-term colonization lead to infection when your other aspects of your immune system and your you know upper respiratory airway protect natural protection start to fail with age and so therefore something you've been carrying for years causes you a problem rather than something you picked up last week yeah, I, again i would i would say all of that Martin mm. and I'm I, I I in no way profess to be a, a strep pneumo expert, but um, I th- I think my my understanding rudimentary though it is is that the strep pneumos that however many of us one in five one of us six of us carry in our nasal and oropharynx um, have the ability to switch on and switch off their capsule and therefore become less or more pathogenic to mm-hmm. to us as a as a carrier of them, but also we are sometimes as disgusting as it may seem sharing our bodily fluids and our oral pharyngeal fluids with one another through intermediary fomite or through kissing one another or however we're sharing Mm. thereby being exposed as non-colonized people to those one in five of the population who are colonized Um, and certainly that latter half i would have expected to disappear but um Mm. i mean the staphorus is also interesting isn't it because sometimes when you see outbreaks of influenza you see more staphorus bloodstream infections and i did read one paper that suggested that you're because you're reacting to the influenza you actually release more staphorus from the biofilm and the upper airways and you get more more pneumonias and more bloodstream infections and yet we didn't see that either yeah so again i I would subscribe to that uh pathological process as being a a valid hypothesis for uh, post-influenza Staph aureus. And uh, I'm in that camp that was very much expecting to see that for COVID pneumonitis. But I think that has not been borne out, as you say, in all of the literature. Stephen Hughes and I wrote a paper on that uh, some time ago. Um, then there is uh, a Brad Langford. Brad Langford does those most beautiful uh, living reviews. And he's got one in clinical microbiology and infection at the moment that uh, continually updates secondary bacterial infection rates post-COVID. And, and that's also at a, at a uh, systematic review and meta-analysis level, not borne out uh, an excess of Staph aureus in COVID pneumonitis. Mm. So I think... Uh, I think every every month we learn something new about COVID, but the the thing I've learned is that it is not in any way influenza. Yes. So uh, yeah. we must we must keep on reminding ourselves of that. We must. Yeah. I mean, the original thought was it'll behave like that, but it turned out not really not to be like that at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and moving on to I the coagulate staffs. I mean, you you've got just you've got to have numbers. But of course, the numbers of your critical care beds, I'm sure, increased. I mean, I ended up working in the, the in the East London in the Nightingale, which. <laughs> although we didn't overuse it uh, to say the least you know it it shows you how much capacity london increased by so uh, is there any chance you might be able to look at see if actually your your rate per i don't know thousand admissions to critical care changed much because you might find out that actually your coagulate stuff rate per device day i mean you won't have that level of data didn't actually change uh, which would be really good for infection control showing you that practice was good yeah, very much so. So uh, it, it's one of our ongoing areas to look at this data into the fine granularity. And now, um, and with with, you know, I do I do lots of patient level uh, 
research, but I also do uh, a reasonable amount of ecological analysis. So, but I'm very aware that those are two separate pursuits, and that we should always be aware of ecological fallacy. Mm. But in in trying to transfer that ecological level data from this manuscript down into the patient level, we're looking at exactly that, Martin. Mm. And um, and and it is hopeful, as you suggest, in that although we have seen in this manuscript an uptick in in random coagulase negative stats, but also those that meet a potential CLABS E definition as a numerator. When we regress that for the denominator, and as you suggest, our doubling and, and sometimes more than doubling more than in doubling, critical yeah. care capacity, um, then then actually as a as, as a as a CLABS E rate in a level two and three area, it's it, it's reasonable. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think PPE usage in general during wave one was variable. Yeah. Let's let's put it that way. Um, and we all learned a, less, a lot of lessons around PPE usage, around um, the, the, you know, the age-old adages of the, the importance of changing PPE between patients between wave one and wave two. And I think uh, a lot of us were better in wave two at that. Um, and then kind of to bear that out we are redoing this analysis to then look at wave two and to see if if we managed to flatten those coagulase negative stuff clabsies and if there was a resurgence of the enterobacteriales bacteremias whether it came returned to baseline whether it went above baseline all of those kinds of things because i yeah. think as we've been saying there's more more to learn here as we've waded through this, the 12 months um, after this. You've got lots of opportunities to review lots of lots of data, unfortunately, well, unfortunately but I mean, some good can come out of this. I mean, I certainly know from standing there on, on the ward at uh, Nightingale, we had one ITU nurse, trained ITU nurse per six beds and you know a different healthcare professional at the bedside. And then you had all the complications of managing lines when you're proning and deproning. So... You know there yeah. there were there were a lot of issues around line management. We we actually couldn't get hold of any um, needleless collectors, so we were having to undo lines a lot. So we we had a number of coagnex staff yeah. infections. I think there were genuine infections related to to practice that were probably unavoidable with what we had in the situation we were at. I just wondered what what your critical care areas were like. Were they able to function relatively normally uh, as regards staff? I mean staff. How did you manage to up the number of beds and cover it with staff yeah so it was um i mean as as with all critical care staff they must be applauded and uh, absolutely congratulated absolutely across the country yeah um the 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 nursing and the medical and the physiotherapy staff responded with amazing alacrity and our clinic our non-critical care support staff who donated as you did martin their time and effort and energy and emotional strength to those endeavors uh, again, must be applauded. We we used an awful lot of not non-critical care personnel in critical care to mm -hmm. support uh, the patient volumes during wave one. Um, and exactly as your experience with the Nightingale Hospital, we had um, uh, we had non-critical care personnel helping with uh, proning, deproning, helping with um, personal care for these patients, and 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 I. In my mind, I cannot fathom, fathom that that did not, um, did not create a potential for increased central line-associated bacteremias, um, notwithstanding me saying earlier that actually when you regress our numerator from this paper back with the denominator, it actually looks very reasonable. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's correct. I mean, it, 
the skills of people, I agree. I have to pay tribute to critical care nurses. And actually, ODPs, um, we had a number yes. of ODPs working at very senior level at the Nightingale. And one good thing about this is I think that people have recognised the skills of these highly skilled people in working in in, uh, in operating department settings who are actually well used to positioning and managing people on ventilators for long periods of time. So, you know, it, we're all learning a bit about each other's skills, I think, which which is a very good thing. Yeah. Um, the taking of blood cultures, did you see any uptick in contaminants in places like the accident departments because they were under such pressure maybe for time constraints and they're all wearing different PPE and maybe not cleaning bottles in the way that, that we might expect? Yeah, very much so. And that's what the data in the manuscript uh, perhaps suggests is a, a, a slight uptick in those coagulation negative staph bacteremias that can be attributed as CLABSEs, but then a huge uptick in sporadic coagulation negative staph bacteremias, which one must attribute to being perhaps because of suboptimal uh, venipuncture technique, perhaps because people were wearing uh, different to PPE to that which they usual, usually wear or yeah. working uh, longer shifts than they usually wear or working in areas which they don't usually care for. And uh, I, I would wholeheartedly su uh, support your assertion mm. that it's, it's in ED. And I think, uh, I think that feeds through into uh, antimicrobial stewardship implications coming out of this manuscript. Yeah, I was going to mention that then. The, the impact of a contaminated blood culture isn't just a contaminated blood culture, is it? No. So, I mean, practice varies. Um, so I take each individual bacteremia uh, with a, with a gram positive coccus in one bottle uh, on its own merit, and I'll evaluate that patient and make a decision as to whether to give a glycopeptide vancomycin or, or whatever until i know more mm -hmm. on a case-by-case -case basis but i'm aware that some places just say grandpas of cocaine in one bottle vancomycin until i know more with, without that level of of kind of digging into it and that means that an awful lot of short courses of vancomycin may potentially have been given out yeah because of 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 these contaminants now th that in my mind has two implications one for the patient. Um, although I wouldn't expect to see much kidney injury arising from one or two doses of vancomycin. Mm -hmm. But then quite what the follow-on is going to be from an ecological antimicrobial resistance level, I'm unclear. Is it going to select out more glycopeptide-resistant enterococci? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Is it going to contribute to excess heterogeneity of vancomycin intermediate staph aureus in the UK? I doubt it, but I, I don't know. Um, and I, I think we just need to watch watch antimicrobial resistance development uh, closely for all kinds of reasons over mm. the next 12, 24 months to see what the fallout is from COVID. But um, I, I think this is this is going to contribute in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I think we can definitely agree that giving unnecessary antibiotics is not good for a number of levels. Any idea of how much it actually costs an organization if you get a contaminated blood culture there's your time to look at it there's a giving of the antibiotics the nurse's time to give these these antibiotics there's possibly a line that has to go in to actually give these antibiotics any idea of the rough cost to this uh i mean that's a great question and i i do not have that data at my fingertips i would i would make a suggestion this is going to be more than 50 pounds and less than 150 pounds uh, and i'm aware that that is a wide range but somewhere somewhere mm. in that uh, ballpark uh, did the did the people actually taking the blood cultures change as a matter of interest? Do you have in your organisations? Do you have uh, phlebotomists who actually would take the blood cultures in the accident department, or is it generally the, the the doctors and nurses who would do that? And was there a change in the personnel during this period because of the pressure? 
so across our hospitals in West London, it's predominantly the clinical, the direct care clinical teams that take the blood cultures. Um, and it varies slightly across our hospitals in our networks. Sometimes it's uh, restricted to doctors. Sometimes it's, it's restricted to people who've gone uh, to, to wider healthcare professional groups who've gone on specific uh, blood culture, vena puncture courses. Um, we don't have set uh, ro roaming phlebotomy teams for blood culture, vena puncture in mm. our sector. I'm aware that some sectors do, and particularly in the US, it's a, is a, there's a move towards that. And mm. I think where those roaming uh, specific phlebotomy teams do take uh, uh, blood cultures routinely, it, it, it drives down your contaminant rate phenomenally. But yeah. it, but it requires all of the healthcare infrastructure and financing. Yeah, to do yeah. That. Well, well, I've seen in the states the cost of uh, of a contaminant over there is it, they they quote from four to eight thousand dollars. So, if you're preventing quite a few of those a year, it's likely to be cost effective. And of course, they've got to report them in anyway, so it may help them from a yeah. regulatory perspective. So, that's a little thing. Yeah. So, f finally, I'm going to put you on the spot. Then, um, what three things should we look at in more detail specifically, and in, in, as as a result of this, because your your papers thrown up lots of questions that really could take uh, further investigation so i guess first and foremost i want to know what happened to all of those enterobacteriales patients is it something that we can relax about is it just that we were doing less surgery less urological procedures less chemotherapy and we do not need to worry or is it that we got the public health messaging wrong mm. and that people with e coli bacteremias were staying at home with their fever because and they had the fever because of the e coli bacteremia not because of COVID. We don't know that for wave one. We don't know then what happened in wave two. And then what happened to them as well? Which, yeah, what happened to them? You know, did they stay at home and heal themselves or not? Well, quite. Um, so that, that's my big unanswered question is what happened to those enterobacterialis bacteremia patients? Mm. Question number two is, were we, with everything we learned from wave one around PPE, around uh, ways of working and, uh, and as our staff became more comfortable with rapid redeployment, mm -hmm. were we better at avoiding blood culture contaminants as we have worn on through wave two? Yeah. And uh, not wanting to be too pessimistic, but staring vaguely into the <laughs> misty crystal ball of the rest of 2021, are we going to be even better yeah. in any tentative it, wave three? <laughs> <laughs> a wave of something that's coming you know probably flu will yeah quite will tick along or i think norovirus is not yeah. far from lurking around the corner either because none of us will be particularly oh. immune to that at the moment very much so so that would be my my second unanswered question is have we got better at avoiding contaminants at times of high stress to our healthcare service mm -hmm. and then question three is this is this is bacteremia data, but I am, I mean, my whole research drive is around antimicrobial resistance and mm -hmm. stewardship. So what, what effect has this change in bacteremia had on the ecology of resistance and how best might we address it through antimicrobial stewardship measures? And just on that last point then, I, I think... Coming out of COVID, we are, from the diagnostics perspective, we're going to be left with, with perhaps a little bit of a diagnostics boon in that we're going to be having, we're all, we've all purchased an awful lot of capital diagnostic platforms to mm. diagnose COVID itself. Yeah. But at some point, we're not going to have to diagnose COVID. We're going to be left with all of these diagnostic bits of kit that are either going to gather dust or we could perhaps repurpose. And if we repurpose them into into bringing forward 
rapid molecular diagnostics to earlier into the patient journey through through identifying a gram-positive cocci in a bloodstream within an hour as to whether it's a staph or it's a, or a coagulase negative yeah. staph, whether we do MRSA screens on a molecular platform that tells us whether somebody is MRSA negative or positive before they move from ED to acute medicine. You know, yeah. those kinds of changes that yeah. before COVID would have been far too expensive, but now we've already got the kit so so why aren't why aren't we going to think about repurposing it so oh, absolutely i mean the future is bright i think for diagnostics absolutely yeah yeah benefits for um, stewardship and infection prevention and control because i come from an era where you saw a paper report and you had to flick through them to actually look and see if there were any antibiograms that look roughly the same they weren't even <laughs> and i remember putting them in by manually into a computer database so yeah, that was 30 years ago. So I things have I look moved youthful. on a bit. Yeah. 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 No, I, don't I, know, I know I look youthful, but I had to sign off <laughs> oh, did a piece of paper as a house officer 20 years ago as well. So there you go. Yeah, okay. Well, thanks very much, Ruth. Luke, it's been fascinating. I've really enjoyed reading the paper. It just it just opened up so many questions to me. And, you know, because the start, the findings were so stark of things you really wouldn't expect. Maybe we might expect the Cognac Cephs, but not the Interactoralis and, and the Staphoruses and Pneumos. Were, but that's questions for other people as well. So... Uh, you know great research that that actually leaves you directions in which to travel i think is always really useful so thanks so much for joining me and giving me your time and uh, undoubtedly we will have you back when you've been analyzed the next lot of wave of data pleasure martin an absolute pleasure thanks very much thank you